Father, thank you for the privilege that I've had to teach the Bible for many years in many places, and particularly here, Father. Thank you for entrusting this uh, to me and to others. And Father, I pray that with what I bring today, you would work through me so that uh, the truth is made clear. Father, I'm far from the most eloquent and certainly not the most powerful in this role, Father, but the beauty of what you do through men is that your word is so utterly clear that it doesn't depend on the eloquence of men. And you are so almighty and so wise that the power of what I might say, Father, will transcend the words I use. Because, Father, it is you who speaks, you who teaches, you who brings all things to the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose, even us here this morning. So, Father, I just ask that you don't let me get in the way of what you want to say, that you would find a way to speak clearly despite your servant and to do so in a way that magnifies your glory and not those of end of, of whether me or anyone else. And, Father, we ask these things because we dearly desire that your name would be proclaimed among the nations, be glorified in the hearing of all, and that we could be a part of that. For one day, Father, we will see you face to face, and we will know the true glory of who you are. And we want to reflect back on the days you gave us here when we reach that moment and say with confidence that we were useful to you in projecting that glory even now, even when it is veiled. Offer us that opportunity, Father, and help us to grow so that we can serve you better through what we learned today. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Well, I can sum up where we are in the story of Gideon and what we learned last week with really one sentence. Gideon is the fearful leader of a pitiful army of 300 nonconformist water lappers. And he has been called by God into a battle against 135,000 Midianites and Amalekites with hordes of camels and everything going for them. Humanly speaking, Gideon has no chance of succeeding in this battle, but the Lord has promised him a victory. So as we studied last week, the impossibility of this battle is intended by God to expose Gideon's fearful nature, to put him in this crucible so that he can see himself accurately as he prepares for this battle. His fear may be natural, but as we learned last week, it's also an impediment to trusting in the Lord. And in that sense, it's sin. And God is surfacing this in Gideon's life through this experience so that he can deal with it. Gideon is guilty of making a mistake that I think every believer tends to make from time to time. The mistake is judging circumstances with worldly understanding. Not applying what I like to call the God multiplier. Not seeing the world through God's eyes. You're not giving... God, the proper consideration for what he is capable to do under your circumstances. Yes, he parts the Red Sea. Yes, he can do many, many great things. But right now, I don't see how he can help me pass this test. Or right now, I don't know how he's going to help me get out of this fix I have at work. It's funny how we think like that. But we do. Otherwise, why would we worry? What could explain worry if, in fact, you have a full and complete appreciation for what God is capable of doing at any time? He must not be watching me today. He must be busy. One commentator observed that no character in the Bible receives more divine assurance than Gideon, and yet no one displays more doubt. In fact, Gideon is the only judge in all of the book of Judges that the Lord speaks to directly by way of the angel of the Lord. He doesn't do this for anyone before or after Gideon. In that sense, you could say Gideon is the closest to the Lord. He's the one who is most intimate with the Lord, and yet he's prone to acting 
like God is nowhere to be found. I think one of the things I love so much about the story of Gideon is the raw humanity of this guy, how similar he is to the way we live all the time. Close to God, particularly in our sense, we have the Spirit of God, and yet, in our day-to-day thoughts and actions, sometimes we act like God is nowhere around. Perhaps it's because of his weaknesses that the Lord was working so hard to reassure this hesitant warrior. And by the way, Gideon had good reason to fear, as I've already said. He had a few hundred men, no real weapons, facing an, an army he couldn't even count. And the Lord said, well, if that's enough to make you afraid, well, then you shouldn't go. Instead, he says, I'm going to give you a vote of confidence. I'm going to give you a little boost. It's going to require that you walk down into the enemy's camp. And when you're there, you're going to see that I can help you win this battle. And we said last week, well, what in the world could he possibly hear from the enemy that's going to give him some confidence? Well, let's pick up there. Verse 9. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down... Go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outposts of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So as we said last week, the Lord is telling Gideon, I want you to go down to the camp because I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to give you a word of confirmation from your enemy. Even this step of assurance that Gideon is being asked to take, even it itself is a test. Because think about it. This is a guy who's already afraid to go into battle against the Midianites. Well, surely he's going to fear approaching the enemy's camp, isn't he? So even in this, there's a test. The Lord could have just given Gideon a sign right then and there where he stood, couldn't he? He didn't need him to go into the camp for that. But he's contrived that. He's made it that way so that Gideon is forced to take a small, manageable step of faith in the direction God is sending him. And in grace, he allows him to go under cover of darkness. He doesn't require that he go in broad daylight. And then he even provides this friend, Pura, to give him some encouragement in the process. So this is very similar to what we talked about a week or two ago when we said the Lord is prone to paving steps of faith for us, as I said, Ways in which we can act in obedience in small increments, allowing for the fact that we may be weak in our faith. We may not have the strength to make the big leap that he's asking us to make, though we should. But because we don't always, God is good to lead us that way. And look what he's doing with Gideon. He's leading Gideon in the direction he should go, mercifully giving him these stepping stones, as I call them, of faith. Gideon, you don't have enough faith, enough strength of faith to go directly into this impossible battle. Okay, I get it. How about you just sneak down there for a minute? Just take a little step with me. Let me show you what I can do. With each step on each of these stones, so to speak, the Lord asks Gideon, in a sense, to meet him halfway, to a degree. In other words, take some amount of trust and faith and take a step in my direction. Watch what I do with it. And in this case, he says, just walk down the hill. Just trust that I'm going to make good on my promise not to let you fall into their hands, not to have you stumble and roll into the camp and then get killed. Just Take a step. And friends, that's the essence of faith in the face of of calamity or, or threats of one kind or another. You have to place your trust, not in your own abilities, but in the character and in the goodness of God. What you have to say to yourself is, all right, I know this situation is leaving me fearful, and I'm tempted to run away, and I can't see how this is going to work out, but I trust that God is good. I know he is good, and therefore I know he has some way to work this out 
even though I can't see it right now. As Jeremiah said to Israel, centuries later, in Jeremiah 29:11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Now, we've heard that probably, and often, unfortunately, it's misquoted and applied to our nation or other nations. It was spoken about only one nation, Israel. But its point is so remarkable when you consider the circumstances in which it was spoken. Jeremiah is the prophet of the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah is telling Israel, you're going to be captured by your foreign enemies and they're going to drag you away in chains and you're going to be enslaved and terrible things are going to happen to you. And then he adds this, but I have plans for you and it's not for calamity. In other words, your eyes will tell you one thing, but the word of God tells you something different. That there is good even in the midst of these circumstances. And just to reinforce for us how reasonable Gideon's fear is, Samuel records just how great the adversary is in this moment. The army, as he comes down the hill in the night to do what God's asked him to do, what he sees laid out before him in the Jezreel Valley is a group of people beyond number. They are laying in the valley, it says, like locusts. And and just trying to count their camels was like trying to count the grains of sand at the seashore. So as he's walking down that hill, this is I love the sense of humor God has in this, right? It's take a step of faith. I'm going to encourage you. What he sees, he walks down the hill. An uncountable army. It's almost working against him, you would think. God's just teeing this up so that when he shows his strength, it's going to seem all the more powerful in the face of this adversary. Remember, the Lord is the one who assembled this enemy in the first place. Remember? He's the one who brought these people into the land as a measure of judgment against Israel. So the Lord brought the size of the army to be what it is. 135,000. And, remember, the Lord has handpicked his 300 water-lapping dog drinkers as his army. That's who he wanted. It's not going to be a fair fight for the Midianites. God has handpicked an army that he intends to win with. Why has he done it? Well, we said last week, the point is, it's not up to the army. It's not dependent on human power. It's entirely dependent on God. And he stacked the odds in such a way that we'll, we'll come to the obvious conclusion. That's where faith and trust comes in for Gideon and for us. Do you believe the Lord is in control? Do you believe he brought the 135,000? Do you believe he picked the 300? Then if you do, if you believe he's in control, you can come into a situation like this and you can sit back with the popcorn and just enjoy the show because God's about to do something miraculous. Or, of course, there is the alternative. You can worry. You can sit and worry about things you can't control and that worry, as we said last time, gets you nowhere. Then it comes time in Gideon's experience for God to bring the encouragement that he promised. Verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian and it came to the tent and it struck it so that it fell and it turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. His friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. Somewhere on the edge of this huge, sprawling camp, you have Gideon and Purah hiding next to a couple of Midianites. And maybe they're in the bushes. Maybe they're behind a boulder. Or maybe the men are inside a tent and they're listening through the tent. We don't know. But the men are probably reclining after a meal. I like to imagine there's an open fire somewhere in the camp nearby. And Gideon is listening. And as he eavesdrops, one of these guys is telling the other guy 
about a dream that he's had. Now, in the Bible, the Lord will periodically use dreams to reveal things to men and women. You remember Joseph, of course, the the dreams he had. Daniel had dreams. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Later in the New Testament, you see Pilate's wife receiving a dream concerning Jesus just before he's crucified. And when these dreams are interpreted properly, they'll lead to some revelation from the Lord. Not every dream is a message from the Lord for those of us who are who are thinking, oh, I had a weird one last night. I wonder what God was saying. No, you cannot expect every dream to have meaning and therefore you can't interpret every dream and expect that that explanation leads to something meaningful. Moreover, the Lord no longer speaks through dreams and prophets, according to Scripture. Hebrews 1 reminds us that the Lord is speaking to humanity now through the greatest messenger, through Christ alone. No other method then is needed. But in Gideon's day... We're still at a point where dreams were an instrument that God would use from time to time. And it's through this conversation of these two men that the Lord is going to relate to Gideon both the dream and the interpretation of the dream in his hearing. So what's the dream? Well, the dream, as you saw, was a barley loaf barreling down a mountainside. Hardly the most imposing figure. A little loaf of bread just rolling down the side of a hill. And there's nothing in the dream to indicate this is like a giant-sized Jezreel Valley sized barley loaf. We're just talking about a normal one as far as we can tell. When it reaches the camp, it hits a tent. Now, the tent here is meant to speak to the camp in general. Like when we talk about the camp of the Midianites, it's singular word, but it refers to the whole of it. The idea of tent here is being used the same way. The tent, the camp of Midian. So one barley loaf mows down the entire camp of Midian. Barley was the grain commonly eaten by the poorest In Israel, if you had money, you would eat wheat, not barley. And it may very well have become the primary grain now for Israel. This may be the time, since the Midianites are raiding so frequently and taking all the good stuff, we may have reached the point where the average Jew now has subsisted on barley instead of on wheat. That may be the reason that was selected. In any case, one guy gives the other guy the dream. The other guy says, oh, I got it. I know exactly what that dream's all about. He says, well, that barley loaf, that could be nothing else but the symbol of Gideon. And then, oh, the knocking over of the tents. Well, that's a premonition that when Gideon's army finally gets down here, he's going to wipe us out. Now, at this point, we're asking, how did he know anything about Gideon? How did he think to associate a barley loaf with Gideon? Well, humanly speaking, maybe you could say that the news that Gideon was assembling an army to attack had gotten out. Remember, he started with 32,000 men. He whittled it down. So, I mean, the word could have been spreading, right, that there was a force being brought together. So maybe they know about Gideon that way. But really, you don't explain this in any way except supernaturally, right? This whole thing is being orchestrated by God. We know that. That's why God sent Gideon down there. So here's what we can say definitively. The Lord uses these two enemy soldiers both to dream and then to interpret the dream for Gideon's benefit. And if you read Scripture with a proper appreciation for the sovereignty of God, then you won't miss the significance of this moment. You have to have an appreciation for the sovereignty of God if you're going to get the significance of what just happened. First, remember this. Gideon was not given any direction by God on where to go in the camp. He had the whole camp laid out in front of him. He just walked down to some random, quote, random tent. Secondly, he happens upon exactly the tent out of 135,000 men where this dream is being discussed. And, more than that, he arrives at exactly the perfect moment. I mean, what if he had been there 30 seconds later? He doesn't hear this conversation. Oh, but it worked out. Just worked out. 
And that reminds us of God's omnipotence, his ability to orchestrate all events according to his will, his power to make sure everything happens according to his desire, his omnipotence, including, if you notice, bending the will and actions of men to fit into his preordained plan. I mean, you can sit here all day long and you can talk about man's will. Men get to do what they want. God stays out of their way and all this other nonsense. But you can't explain this moment if you're going to hold to those perspectives out of Scripture. How do you explain Gideon showing up at the right place at the right time, two men having exactly the right conversation when they needed to about the very thing God wanted? Did they sit around and pre-plan that? Of course not. Were they thinking as it's happening that they were doing it without their will involved, that they were somehow robots, God was controlling them, and it was all coming out of them without explanation? No. It was natural to them. It felt like they initiated it. It was what they wanted, when they wanted it. But here's the thing. It all happened according to God's preordained plan and will, and they're working in it without even knowing they're a part of it. That's the power of the sovereignty of God's will and his omnipotence. But it doesn't stop there. Secondly, the man Gideon happens upon a conversation that tells us this dream has already happened. This dream is in the past, whether earlier that night or perhaps the night before. We don't know. In fact, this man was having this dream even before Gideon left to go down into the camp. He would have had to in order for the timing to be right. So you might ask, how did the Lord know that Gideon would even take him up on the offer to go into the camp? So that the dream would have been pre-positioned in the man's experience. That reminds us, friends, of God's omniscience. That he has the ability to look into the future, to anticipate all events and fit them all to his purpose. His omniscience. He's always working, even on events that have yet to materialize in our own experience. There are things that have yet to happen in this world that God has already planned, and when they happen, they will fit perfectly into something he's doing in your life. You and I don't even know about them yet because they haven't even happened. But when they do, be like a glove. It'll fit. That's the omniscience of God. Finally, there was a soldier with the proper interpretation to understand the revelation of a dream that was given to another guy at just the right time, and then he had the wherewithal to speak it out loud in Gideon's hearing. He knew what he had to say when he had to say it. And when you look at what he concludes, you can tell clearly this guy would not have such an obscure interpretation available to him were it not for God delivering it to him. I mean, can we not agree to that? God even made sure that the dream itself was so obscure and the man's revelation so specific that human intellect doesn't connect the two for us. There's no explanation. There is nothing obvious about associating Gideon with a barley loaf. Right. In fact, it's remarkable that this particular man even knew Gideon's name at all. This, friends, reminds us of God's omnipresence by this Holy Spirit, that he can be in all places at all times working his will. In this case, what you see is the spirit working in the heart of this soldier to reveal the will of God in what he could understand about a dream. I doubt this man was a professional dream interpreter. And I bet his friend who heard this interpretation thought, what have you been smoking? Where did this come from? Right. And yet Gideon's heart heard it. And at the same moment that the spirit was working in the interpreter, he was likewise working in Gideon's heart to confirm you just heard from the Lord. And if you want to follow the Lord, 
in strength of faith. If you want to be the kind of person who has confidence to step out when the Lord calls you, then you need only to remember that you serve a God who is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. If you keep those things in your mind, then nothing is beyond what God can do in your life. And in fact, I have found in my own experience that it's a general rule of Scripture that our strength of faith is proportional to our understanding and acceptance of God's sovereignty. If you hold a high view of God's sovereignty, well, then you will likewise typically exhibit a high degree of trust and faith in the Lord as you walk. Not perfect, of course, but with a high view of sovereignty, you're going to worship him more earnestly. You're going to follow him more faithfully. You are going to acknowledge him more boldly because you trust that whatever might follow is according to his plan. You'll find courage in the face of trials more easily because you'll understand every detail I'm facing was planned by God before I even knew it was coming so I can trust him with the end. That's the primary source of encouragement for Gideon here. I want you to see this clearly. God did not, he did not encourage Gideon by simply confirming for Gideon that you're going to win the battle. Because earlier he had already told Gideon exactly that same thing. So what is the source of encouragement here? It's not the message. It's the method. It's the medium. Notice what Gideon does immediately after hearing this message. Verse 15. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. He divided the 300 men into three companies and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. He said to them, look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all the men are with me, blow the trumpet. Then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say for the Lord and for Gideon. So starting at verse 15, when Gideon hears this exchange, he bows right then and there, wherever he was, behind the rock, behind the bush, whatever he was doing, and he worships the Lord. Can you imagine the relief he must have felt? I mean, remember what he was feeling as he came down the hill? I can't even count their camels, much less them. I got 300 guys behind me. I'm not even sure these guys know which way is up. And this is who I'm going to use to fight this battle. And I'm just fearful that this is going to be a disaster. And now, in an instant, all of that leaves him. The tension, the, the worry. I have to think he may have had tears of gratitude and joy welling up in him as he heard what he heard coming through that tent. Spontaneously, we're told, he just enters into a moment of worshiping the Lord God. But as I said, notice there was no new information in what he hears. Back in verse 9, he already knew this same truth. If the truth of God saying, I'm going to win the battle for you, if that had been sufficient, why didn't he well up with tears and worship back in verse 9? Why was he still doubting in verse 9? When the Lord himself told him it wasn't good enough, but when somebody else tells him, now he's excited? No, that's not the point. Why did he worship here? The answer is because this is exactly how you feel when you have an encounter with the sovereignty and the power of God. In an instant, he grasped the full power of a God who could bring all these details together. Everything I just took time to break down and explain, he had to have experienced in a flood of thought in a moment. I'm here, I picked this tent, but this tent, they're having the dream, and the guy could interpret the dream, and my name is in the dream, and it all happened right as God said. All of a sudden, he puts two and two together, and he grasps the power of a God who could bring all those details together for him. Have you ever been in a moment like that? 
Maybe not with so much at stake, I get it, but even on a small scale, I have. It's like the Lord pulls back the curtain just a little bit to show you what He's capable of doing, how much He is already at work. All the threads of life that He is weaving, you're just in there somewhere, and you realize, I couldn't be here in this moment with all of this happening if God had not done all of these things earlier in some way. I was relating a story to someone after the Sunday school today about my own experiences. I left the military. One of the things you have to do when you out-process from the military is you have to go check off a bunch of of stations with people, you have to confirm that they say you're good to leave. You've done your duty, you've turned in your equipment, you've paid your bills, whatever. And as I was going through that process, it takes a week or two usually, as I was going through that process, I would talk to these people as I was going through out processing, and they would ask me a question like, oh, so what are you going to go do next? You know, that would be the normal conversation when they're leaving the military. Only what I heard on three different occasions was, oh, are you that guy who's leaving to become a pastor? And I hadn't said that. I didn't even think that. It wasn't even on my mind to do that. I had no concept of doing that. And so the first time you hear it, you just naturally assume, oh, you're thinking of someone else. The second time you hear that from another stranger somewhere else, I'm wondering, well, maybe there's another guy who is going out to be a pastor who's out processing with me, and we just seem to be following each other, and that's why they're confusing me. Third time, now something inside me said, this is a message from the Lord, which, which completely freaked me out. That's a small-scale version of this, but it's the same feeling. You suddenly have this encounter with the sovereignty of God, and you realize, this God is big. He can do big things. He's got a lot more power and control than I ever imagined yet. And then when you stop and you think about it, you're like, well, why didn't I assume that? That's just natural. But the reality of how you live your life so often is you put that aside, and you're back to your thoughts about your world, and you keep him up here. But he's not just up there. That's the encouragement the Lord wanted to offer to Gideon. And that is the reason why he worshiped. There is only one answer God gives to those who doubt him or who fail to follow him in trust and obedience. And that answer is he displays his power. When Jacob feared leaving the land, what did God do? Give him a rational explanation for why he can be sure he'll come back? No, he displayed a ladder of angels coming down to help him. An example of his power. Or when Moses doubted his ability to convince Pharaoh with his mouth and, you know, all the things he said about what he couldn't do, what did God do? God said, put your hand into your cloak, take it out, it's leprous, put it back, it's not. You see what I can do? Consider that. And Gideon, you don't think you can beat these guys? I'll have them speak a prophetic word about your ability to defeat them. How's that? He didn't receive proof that he would win. You notice that? He didn't see any evidence that he's going to win. He didn't get like a premonition of how the battle was going to play out. All he got was evidence that God is capable of doing anything. And that's enough. You've received an even greater display of God's power so that you can be sure he can keep his promises. Second Corinthians 4.13, Paul says, But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Paul's simply saying, what God did to Jesus, he did publicly, so that you and I would have confidence to know he can do the same things for us. Your death is not the end of you, any more than it was for Jesus. So it's his power that becomes a defense of what he can do. It's his power that leads us into a trust and into a faith that walks with him. That's what Gideon has seen. The message has now been received. So, emboldened by confidence in God's power to deliver him, Gideon jumps into action. And the plan he comes up with here is a pretty good one. He starts by taking his 300 men and dividing them, as you saw. 
He equips them, but notice what he gives them. There's no swords here. This, this is not a group of military men. He gives them horns, pots, and torches. And he tells them, just do what I do, and we'll be fine. Look at verse 19, and you'll see how this plays out. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle of watch, when they had just posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. When they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerara, as far as the edge of Abel Meholah by Tabath. So it's a pretty good plan. Now, I don't know if the Lord gave Gideon this particular military maneuver directly or if he simply led him to the idea through the advice of other men or however it came to Gideon. Regardless, it's a daring idea. And it would have given his men, I think, reason to hope for victory, which is why perhaps they were willing to follow him even one step in this direction. So we know Gideon's going into this fight because he's got the confidence of having heard the dream and so on. But you have to also wonder how did the 300 men share in that confidence? Perhaps it was this plan. In any case, here's what he proposes. He proposes a surprise attack that is intended to convince the enemy that they have this vast Jewish army descending down from the hills on top of them. And remember, this is at night. So what he does at the middle watch, which is roughly midnight, right after the the middle watch is posted, he takes his 300 men, he splits them into three groups of 100. You heard that earlier. And then he spreads them out across the hills around the Jezreel Valley. In verse 19, it says Gideon took his 100 men and he moved to the outskirts of the camp. The other two groups move left and right of him, presumably, or around him. Gideon's going to initiate the launch of the, of the attack. The other two just follow when they see it happen. Remember, no cell phones, no radios. They've got to do it by sight. So they're just waiting to see what Gideon does. Then they're going to follow. Here's what they do. Simultaneously, all men blow their horn, a shofar. It's a ram's horn. It makes this loud, resonating sound. You can hear it from a long way. And at the same moment, they all start blowing this horn. So you've got 300 horns going. Same moment, they take a pot. Think of a big earthen vessel, big earthen clay pot. They've got a torch that's lit, but they put it inside the pot. And then at the right moment, they smash the pot. Now, what that does, of course, is it exposes the light that was hidden in the pot. All right, so why did it stay hidden at first? Well, for the surprise of this, they wanted instantaneously the sound of 300 horns and the appearance of 300 lights on the sides of the hill, where before there had been quiet and dark. Now, typically in battle, only the commander of a squad of men or of a unit of men would carry a shofar and a torch. So he would use those to direct the battle, to call the people to do what they wanted and to direct them with the light. But now Gideon has got all 300 of his men, each with one of these things. So naturally, as those appear on the hillside, what does the enemy assume? I've got 300 squads of men. I've got 300 units of men coming down the hill at me. And so the plan is to disorient them and to scare them and to get them confused, as you see. But before we go to what happened, there's a beautiful picture in this. Did you start to see it for yourself? a picture of what was accomplished through this brilliant plan. You have the blowing of a horn. In Scripture, the blowing of a horn commonly is is a part of announcing the appearance of God 
or the powerful work of God. For example, in the Feast of Trumpets, we just saw it celebrated recently, Rosh Hashanah in the Jewish New Year, that's a picture of the resurrection of the church or the rapture of the church, and it's begun with the blowing of a horn. And the light, the light of these torches, it's a picture of the light of the Spirit in the world through the lives of God's children. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But listen to this. Paul says, we have this treasure, that light, in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God, not of ourselves. Think about what picture was just created by what Gideon did on that hillside. You have 300 men, earthen vessels, carrying the light of God and their faithful obedience to the Lord's call. But before the light could shine in the darkness, what had to happen? Those earthen vessels had to be shattered. As long as those men were living in fearful flesh, the light of God remained hidden inside them. But God had to smash, so to speak, their dependence on flesh. He had to expose the light that was within them. Only then could they achieve victory. So in this really beautiful way, what they're doing physically with torches and pots is picturing what's happening in them personally as each of them takes a step of faith to go into battle, but not quietly, not dependent on human technology, human convention and the like, but totally dependent on God. And of course, when God wins this battle, it's going to be that his power will be the cause, his glory will be credited, not the men. That's what Paul says. We have ourselves the spirit of God, the light of God, a magnificent, glorious thing put in these rough earthen vessels. So that God's power is evident in us, not our own power. And then to finish the, the scene, the camp is groggy. They wake to the sound. They see the hills alive with points of light and the sounds of all these horns. They assume there's a huge force here. And in verse 21, look what Gideon's army does. Nothing. Verse 21, they stood in their place. So don't get the impression that 300 guys come, ah, you know, like Braveheart or something, just barreling down the hill, screaming their head off, you know, hoping to scare these guys. No, they just stand there and go. <laughs> Remind you of another scene in Joshua, Jericho. The goal here is don't run into battle. Don't do this on your own. Let the Lord do it. Just stand by and watch. Immediately, the Midianites react in panic. They're confused. And then it says they start killing each other. Now, why would they do that? Apart from supernatural explanations. Well, the camp here is actually an amalgamation of three different armies. You have Midianites mentioned, Amalekites were mentioned, and there are probably other Arabians in the group as well, all of them coming from the east. And these groups did not speak the same language. So perhaps in their confusion, they mistook each other for the enemy. They didn't know who was who. It's dark. They're groggy. They hear sounds. They wonder who's already come into the camp. Maybe they've already managed to make their way in. And, oh, I don't know you and you don't speak my language and I'm not going to take a chance. So I start killing you. And it just goes from there. Bottom line, the Lord's directing this outcome. Gideon and his troops don't have to do anything at all. And that's been the plan from the beginning, friends. That's explaining why the Lord picked 300 nobodies to put in his army. He really didn't need any of them anyway. He just said, look, I'm going to have you guys blow horns. How many horns do I need? Oh, maybe let's say 300 horns. You guys are fine. Right? It didn't mean that he had to explain it all in advance. But the point is, he knew what he was going to do. Could you trust that God knew what he was going to do? These guys weren't warriors. They were stand-ins. They were extras. 
They just had to be willing to follow the Lord's instructions and stand there. If you were a soldier evaluating this situation with human logic before the fight, you would have given up on God and Gideon long ago. Some of those men did. That's why we're down to 300. You would never have gone this far. But as I said last week, if you aren't willing to go down this path of faith, what you miss is the miracles that happen at the end of it. Only 300 guys got to see this battle. And I'm sure they were talking about it for years afterward. It's still in the Bible, right? We're still talking about it. Faith, friends, will take you places that sight can never reach. That's what God's asking. So the panic drives the enemy into retreat. To finish the chapter... Gideon's forces see this opportunity as one to finish these guys off once and for all. Clearly, 300 soldiers isn't going to be enough to finish these guys off. Not if you have to get into real hand-to-hand combat, right? So they call for help. Verse 23. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and Almanasa, and they pursued Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb while they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. Well, immediately Gideon says, hey, I need help here. He calls his surrounding tribes in the Jezreel Valley. The tribes that surround that area are the ones you see mentioned here, north, south, east, west. He calls them together and he says, we have a chance, guys, to finish these guys off if you'll come to the battle with me. And then he makes another sound tactical maneuver. He calls for the men of Ephraim, which is the tribe that borders the eastern side of Canaan next to the Jordan River and in the center of the, of the nation of Canaan. He says, I want you to cut off all their escape routes. As they head back east, they're going to be going through these deep canyons, these wadis that lead down to the Jordan River. Once they cross the Jordan, they're in their own land. That's going to be a harder place to go after them. Let's cut them off so they can't get home. So he calls for Ephraim to go and block all of those passages, and he will then have the opportunity to kill them rather than let them live to fight another day. He says from Jezreel down to Beth Barah, that's about 60 miles through the middle section of Canaan, of present-day Israel, That southern border, Beth Barah, is like this far from Bethlehem. It's just to the outskirts of Bethlehem on the east. So that's the main route. It cuts off their entire escape. It lets them capture not only most of the army, we're told, but the two leaders whose names, respectively, mean raven and wolf. Those words mean raven and wolf. And those names reflect the way the Midianites were scavengers and predators against the nation of Israel. And it says there that they were killed at places named after them. Well, when you see that, of course, it doesn't mean that it was just coincidentally already named for them. It's saying that we've now come to name those places after them because that's where they died. In the end, all of what we've read here is nothing if not a testimony to the power of God to do anything that he wishes through feeble hands and feet. It begins with a call to a faithful servant. It progresses to signs of encouragement for that servant. It leads to removing fear and dependence on human wisdom and strength. It may include other signs of encouragement, displays of his authority and power. And then once we've seen that, we're willing to worship him for who he is. Well, then the work can begin. And the Lord does it all. Why do we even need Gideon in the first place here? Why didn't the Lord just do all of this without Gideon? I I don't mean without human beings. I just mean, why fight with a guy who's having so much trouble even believing what you tell him? Why don't you skip that step and just... Grab 300 guys and send them down the hill with shofars. Why Gideon? What did he have to be a part of this for? And the answer we came to last week is still the same answer this week. God didn't need Gideon. 
Gideon needed God. And what God has done in orchestrating all of these events, he's done for the mere purpose of building up Gideon so that Gideon could be useful to him in the nation of Israel. Getting through this process of expelling the Midianites, that's just a footnote to the story. The story is about what God is doing with Gideon, building up his faith. So how's the Lord doing that for you? Those trials and turmoils of your life, whether at home, at work, in school, some other place in your family, things you just think are so terrible and difficult to deal with, you wonder why are they going on? Have you ever considered that they're not the point? That God could solve them like this tomorrow? That, in fact, he brought them to bear for other reasons? That the real point is who you are in Christ? And that you can't be different than you are unless you're taken through some process that exposes your your needs, your faults, your sins, your weaknesses, your lack of faith, and puts you in contact with a God who now you're so dependent on, you can't help but notice his presence. And then because you're watching, you can learn from him as he does what he plans to do. Has he put a call on your life, but you're hesitant to obey it? And you may have good reasons, but perhaps it's all those reasons that are the problem. Let him show his sovereignty in your life and then worship him for who he is. Follow him. Don't worry about the other stuff. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, show us your power, Father. Not in signs and wonders, but show it to his Father in in the quiet ways that you have for centuries. Through your word, through the spirit living in us, through those around us, perhaps a friend or a neighbor who would share a thought that confirms in our hearts what you're at work doing in our lives through a spouse who who asks that penetrating question or who gives us that uh, word of encouragement whatever way father you might want to bring, bring us to a, a better awareness of who you are lord let that happen so that we might be better servants better followers of you help us see your sovereignty father in the way that the bible does that it, you're in control of all things and everything's working according to your will and it's on time it's not late It's not out of control. The stuff we see in the news and in the world around us is all a part of what you plan to do. We don't accept the sin of this world. We don't embrace the mistakes of others. We we recognize, Father, that you still call us to be holy as you are holy. But when those things aren't the way we want them to be, it, it doesn't cause us to doubt that your goodness or ultimately what you promised for us in eternity. We can be content, Father, to recognize that sin... It's all around us, and so sin will be an everyday part of every, uh, an every part of every day of our life. But that doesn't mean, Father, that um, you aren't on your throne. So, for those things we long for dearly, Father, for those who would um, come to know you or return to you, for those who have wounded us or who we have wounded, for those goals that feel out of reach, Father, that we believe we should be seeking. Let us trust in you, Father, that the timing is in your hands and that the reasons they aren't there today are are good and purposeful and we can rest in that. And then let us have faith to step out as you call us. We pray these things, Father, in awesome recognition of your power through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.